Thank you so much. Good morning. You know, we're looking today at a passage of Scripture that builds off of what we considered and pondered last week with regard to Solomon's desire for wisdom. I'd like you to turn your Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verse 16 down through verse 28. Chronicles doesn't carry this passage, but so many of the passages are parallel passages between Chronicles and Kings. But what you and I find here now is that the writer is going to build off this tremendous request that Solomon had before God for wisdom. Immediately now, a case study is brought to our attention. The passage we're looking at today deals with judicial wisdom. Then what the writer will do is he will add additional case studies, organizational wisdom followed by educational wisdom for those that are involved in various areas of teaching or leading and businesses and so on. But today we're going to focus upon this classic story where two prostitutes come before Solomon now, and well, we're just going to let the passage unfold it before our very eyes, where beginning in verse 16, we read, Well, now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. and We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. But during the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. And so she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. When I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it was not the son I had borne. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. So they argued before the king. The king said, well, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead, while that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. 
Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. So we've got a complex case study on our hands here. And there is a depth of wisdom that is found in these verses that we want to be able to relate to our everyday personal experience. So we're going to start by looking to our Lord in prayer. So our fathers, we're coming before you the wisdom that Solomon desired and sought kind of wisdom we need, a wisdom from you, practical living of everyday life for your honor and your glory. Pray, Father, that your word and your wisdom find that dual emphasis within our hearts that stirs us, Father, to want to live for you. So for the person here today, maybe it's work-related. Maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's some form of relationships that are strained and wisdom is needed. Whatever the issues, no matter what the circumstances, your grace is sufficient. So Father, warm our hearts and engage our minds as once again We've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Second President of the United States, John Adams, was asked about what was the most significant accomplishment in his term in office. He paused and looked upward, and then he uttered two words, John Marshall. Then he added, John Marshall, who I appointed to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, embodies what everybody ought to long for in this position. He has the unique ability of coupling justice with wisdom. And when I read those words, my mind went immediately to this passage of Scripture. For who better couples the blending of justice with wisdom than Solomon? Now Solomon has requested of God that God give him wisdom. Chokmah, as we noted last week. The Hebrew word means masterful understanding, expertise, skill. Immediately, Solomon is going to be put to the test. For as soon as he has made this request of God, a court case appears in his very presence. What's interesting in verse 16 is that in the Hebrew, 
though it's not drawn out in the New International Version. It begins with the phrase, then came. In other words, as soon as this request was met and God had given Solomon this wisdom, then comes this test, then comes this trial. Isn't it fascinating that after you have received something from God, that very thing you receive from God will be tested by God? And so now a court case begins to emerge in front of his very eyes. And as this court case begins to emerge, what stands out for us is that he is going to desperately need discernment in the face of deception, which is something that you and I need in our own personal experiences. For ever since the Garden of Eden, where Eve lacked discernment in the face of deception, this has been the history of humanity, how to be able to maintain quality decision-making in the face of deception, utilizing the gift of discernment. So that in mind, I want to draw out from this passage of Scripture this morning, Five guidelines that the writer here has provided us with in order to be more equipped to be able to produce discernment in the midst of deception, particularly when you and I might be called in some way, shape, or form to be involved in mediating a conflict, whether it be at work or in the family or in various relationships. Mediating conflicts, discernment in the face of deception. Let's dig in. The first guideline I see is found in verse 16 down through verse 22. We're going to phrase it like this, number one, that when mediating conflict, seek to examine the case thoroughly, which is now what you and I are about to do. Let's begin to break this thing down. Now, two prostitutes came to the king, stood before him. One of them said, My lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night, took my son from my side, while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. Stop right there. Now notice here the tension. The tension has to do with the matters of death and deception. You're examining the case. You're analyzing the issues. You're digesting the information. What's the problem? Here's the problem. There are no eyewitnesses. 
Otherwise, this would have been decided in a lower court. But now, very first case emerges in the eyes of Solomon. He's got a she said, she said before him, and there are no eyewitnesses to verify the case one way or the other. And so now he begins the process, and maybe we are there, and we're watching, and we're observing, because we are, we're observers of the court. And we begin to ask ourselves, okay, this first woman, why did she take the initiative? Was she asked to? Or was this the burden of her heart? You make mental note of that. She pulled the trigger. She, she takes the initiative. As the story unfolds, what will also strike you about the first woman is that there's more detail to her story than there is detail in the respondent's story. Very detailed. It's longer. Look at the second woman in verse 22. The other woman said, no. Note the exclamation point. It's brusque. It's abrupt. It's emphatic. It's in the negative. The living one is my son. The dead one is yours. You're listening. You notice that her response is short and brusque. You begin to compare, and you notice that the first one refers to the child as baby. The Hebrew word is yelad. It is the maternal word for an infant. The second one refers to him as son, but not as baby. You're making mental note of what's taking place here. Now you watch and observe how Solomon, who has requested wisdom, is beginning to manage this conflict and discernment in the midst of deception. As she goes on, the first one insists, no, almost repeating what the prior one has said, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine, and so they argued before the king. In other words, the argument now is entered into a logjam. There is circular reasoning. Now look at Solomon. What are you learning from him? The first thing is this. He refrains from speaking thus far. He doesn't interrupt. He is digesting the information. And as will become quite apparent as the story continues to unfold, he is mentally engaged. What's more, As he demonstrates discernment in the face of deception, he hears both sides. Albeit one may talk at greater length than the other, but he doesn't cut one person off or the other person off until we have reached a logjam, until they're arguing in circles. He allows both sides to present the evidence And furthermore, he withholds judgment thus far. 
Now, maybe he has learned from his father, who also was known in the nation as a man of wisdom. For there came a time when David was having to flee Jerusalem because Absalom was revolting against David's authority. And there was a man, according to 2 Samuel 16, verses 1 down through verse 5, his name was Ziba, who oversaw the estate of Mephibosheth. And Ziba informs David that Mephibosheth has sided with Absalom, and David brusquely and quickly and matter-of-factly says, Therefore, all the estate I give to you. Only to find out later, on his return to Jerusalem, when Mephibosheth meets him, that Ziba deceived David. David should have withheld judgment. David should have heard both sides. David was too rash with his decision. As Solomon would put it, A man who lacks judgment derides his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his tongue. Proverbs 11, verse 12. Now Solomon is holding his tongue. He's listening. He's most likely watching. And the one who is discerning in the face of deception does what Lady Wisdom of Proverbs 8 informs us to do. Look, listen, and wait. So he's most likely watching the body language, the eye contacts. He's listening to the brusqueness of one. He's listening to the elongated compassion and passion of the other. He's pondering not only what is being said, he's also pondering what is not being said. He's looking for periods, commas, questions, and exclamation points. He's waiting for this thing to reach a point of no return when they're simply arguing back and forth. And he's asking himself a series of questions such as, Where do I begin? What should I do? But he knows where to begin. It's with the Word of God. For you see, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it was the responsibility of a new king to copy the law of God so that he would have it mastered in the whole art of decision-making. Because the Word of God yields the wisdom of God for our lives. As we've sometimes noted, that there's a huge painting hanging in the Supreme Court building in Switzerland. It's painted by an artist. His name is Paul Robert. The title is Justice Instructing the Judges. In the foreground are the litigants. There's a wife against a husband, architect against a builder, And above them stand the Swiss judges. And the question is, how are they going to judge? How are they going to decide? And the whole of sociological legal theory is before us in this one painting. But the artist 
answer is simply this. Justice, which is usually blindfolded, with her sword vertical, as is common, is unblindfolded, with her sword pointing downward to a book on which is written the Word of God. As John Adams ponders the significance of the fact that John Marshall, for 34 years Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, architect of the whole argument of judicial review, has this tremendous capacity of coupling justice with wisdom. This is what's needed. Facing deception. This is what was needed in the Garden of Eden. This is what's needed in our nation today. This is what's needed in our lives. So now when mediating the conflict, seek to examine the case thoroughly. Note the issues, death and deception. Note the problem. No eyewitness, which is what Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 required for a case to be decided in courts. Examine the first and the second litigants. The first woman, she initiates. It's longer. It's detailed. The second woman, she responds. It's short. It's brusque with exclamation point. Solomon's refraining. He's not interrupting. He's hearing both sides. He's withholding judgment. He's listening. He's waiting. And so they argue. Sometimes there's wisdom in allowing the argument to run its course so that you begin to connect the dots as to what the true issues are and where to go from here. Solomon does that. He has the capacity to look, listen, and wait. And yet he has this ability to time his involvement without interruptions. Do we? If so, we're ready for the second guideline when you're facing deception and you need to make a decision. You may be mediating a conflict, maybe in your household, maybe an extended family, maybe at work. Number two. When mediating conflict, seek to restate the facts succinctly. Look at verse 23. The king said, This one says, My son is alive and your son is dead. While that one says, No, your son is dead and mine is alive. That's all he says. Camp on that for a minute. What's going on? First of all, he's reviewing both claims. Not one to the exclusion of the other. Wording-wise, he gives the same amount of wording to both. 
purposely, he is establishing accuracy because they have the opportunity to say, no, that's not what I meant, or no, that's not what I said. So now he is verbalizing. He's expressing outwardly what he has processed inwardly. And furthermore, he is reducing the conflict to the essentials. Are you developing that capacity to reduce conflict to the essentials? Or are you prone to get off on secondary issues? They are not primary to the primary challenge or conflict that you're addressing. Now, what stands out for me here is that Solomon is demonstrating brevity. Brevity of speech. Less is more. They've said a lot. He says a little. This one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. That one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. There is tremendous wisdom in the usage of brevity for the sake of developing a sense of perspective where emotions are heightened in the family or at the workplace. There was a White House press conference and various reporters were firing their questions at Calvin Coolidge, nicknamed Silent Cal prior president of the United States. Have you anything to say about prohibition, he was asked? No. Have you anything to say about the world court? No. About the farm situation? No. About the senatorial campaign? No. Exasperated, the reporters got up to leave, and he looked at them and said, And don't quote me. Brevity. Succinctness. It is the well-phrased statement, the well-developed idea that lingers in the minds of people. They have opportunity. They know that he has developed a sense of comprehension of the issue. Both sides have heard him verbalize. He's established accuracy. Both sides have had the opportunity to say, no, that's not what I intended, or no, that's not what I said. Both sides know that he has now reduced the conflict to the essentials. And so should we when we're confronted with deception and we're required to make a decision. So you're working the process, aren't you? And you're pondering the significance of what Solomon had requested of God, where in chapter 3, in verse 9, the prayer was, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong. The Hebrew word bin, to discern. To discern is one of the criteria of cultivating wisdom, chokmah, masterful understanding. Now, Solomon wants masterful understanding, and so he has examined the case thoroughly. 
And furthermore, he has restated the facts succinctly. He's able to do this because God has said in verse 12 of this chapter, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart. Now, as you are cultivating and developing and disciplining this ability that God desires for us to be able to utilize, where the Word of God produces the wisdom of God in our lives, we're ready to embrace the third guideline that's found here. When mediating conflict, thirdly, seek to pursue the truth impartially. Look at verse 24, 25. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. Stop right there. He hasn't explained why. He has allowed for the verbal to run its course. Now it's time for the visual to step forward. Wisdom uses multisensory approaches to being able to discern the issues of the hour. What's more, this informs you and me that there are other people present. He doesn't go and get the sword for himself. Those that are serving Solomon are being told and commanded by Solomon, bring him the sword. There are eyewitnesses to Solomon. Even though there were not eyewitnesses in that terrible evening hour, Solomon's wise. He knows he needs other people present to verify what he's about to do. No misunderstandings. No gossip out there in the nation. First-hand witnesses, which these women had lacked. Now, he's creative. He's purposeful. He's creative. He's blending the visual with the verbal. Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order. Cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. What's the purpose here? The purpose is not to cut the child, but to cut the heart of the child's mother. The word discern or to dissect or to divide. The D-I opening lettering of these words carries with the idea of the ability to penetrate and to separate. What he wants to know is he begins to penetrate the hearts and to separate out the details. Which heart possesses the love? Which heart contains the loyalty? Which heart embraces and values the life. Love. Loyalty. 
life. Just being impartial here. Not too quick. Times is intervention. So should we. Leads us now to this fourth guideline. We're going to phrase it like this. When mediating conflict, seek to evaluate the reactions carefully. Emotions oftentimes reveal values. Emotions may express outwardly what is treasured inwardly. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Break down the responses. Look at the first woman. You and I are informed that the woman whose son was alive was, first of all, filled with compassion. Compassion for her son. Not vindictiveness toward the other woman. Furthermore, notice with me that this first woman addresses the king. She was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, In other words, here's somebody who recognizes all authority. Notice the word please. There's humility here. There's respect here. My Lord, give her the living baby. Baby. The Hebrew word for baby is yelad. comes with the idea of a maternal relationship with an infant. She doesn't say child. She doesn't say son. She used the word yelad. When confronted with deception, even singular words matter. There could be tip-offs. There has to be a a shelf in your mental closet to place such important words in the midst of this kind of conflict, you see. The maternal word for the infant. But notice the other woman now. Neither I nor you shall have him cut him in two. The word compassion is not expressed here. But what interests me is that she does not speak to the king. She speaks to the other woman. Have you noticed that? The first woman addressed the king. The second woman addresses the first woman. Neither I nor you shall have him. Oh, there's a tip-off. 
Solomon knows there's a root system to this conflict. There's something deeply embedded here in the dynamics. Cut them in two, she says. One says, don't kill him. The other says, cut him in two. One is demonstrating a longing for mercy. The other supposedly is emphasizing a theme of justice. Beware in this culture of a theme of justice, which is in reality injustice. Just masquerades as justice. Look at who's being addressed. Look at how the wording is used. And the second woman does not even use the word yelad. Him. Just him. Cut him in two. Feel the tension between the personal and the impersonal here? And you're Solomon. And in chapter 3, verse 9, you had prayed, So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. And John Adams is reflecting upon Chief Justice John Marshall. It is rare to find an individual who can so couple justice with wisdom. Ready for the the fifth guideline? When mediating conflicts, seek to draw the conclusion accurately. That's your goal. So in verse 27, we are moving towards resolution, not elongation. The king gave his ruling, give the living baby. Did you hear what he said? Not child, not son. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. Now there are witnesses here, and they hear what Solomon says. He's providing direction to the attendees. He's providing protection for this child. And he is securing identification of the mother. This is a moment of resolution. And when you and I are faced with those times of deception, such as when a serpent approaches an Eve, or there are two women with no eyewitness, and you are somehow, someway being involved and pulled in to the issue of the hour, You're now embracing the guidelines of a case study that God had unfolded for you, found in these verses. Well, notice what Israel is thinking. 
When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw he had wisdom from God to administer justice. It's interesting here, verse 28, because if you were to read it woodenly from Hebrew, it would read, Then all Israel heard the judgment which the king had judged. And they feared before the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. The wisdom of God was in him. So when the word of God resides in your heart, the wisdom of God is found front and center in your own sphere of decision-making which made you then nod your head at that old, that old proverb from Persia long ago. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a child. Teach him. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep. Wake him. He who knows and knows that he knows is wise. Follow him. But a warning. If you know, and you know that you know, Don't flaunt what you know. Be wise. You know what's fascinating here? This points towards Jesus. Now I want you to ponder how this passage of Scripture relates to a prophecy that was delivered in the 8th century B.C. after Solomon had already gone left the map, departed from Israel. But there's this statement made by Isaiah in chapter 11 of his account. And in verse 1, if this can appear on the screen, and notice the wording, and notice the italicization here, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, Solomon's grandfather. Jesus is of the line of David and Solomon and so on. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Notice this. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Very words which are found in this passage in 1 Kings 3. The Spirit of counsel and power. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Didn't Solomon write? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Coupled with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In his penning of the Proverbs, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. 
And the reader is thinking back to the way in which the wording in Isaiah 11 links to 1 Kings 3 and Solomon. And there's one greater than Solomon who's here. And now the word of God and the wisdom of God are embedded in the Son of God who came to do just what Isaiah prophesied, rooted in what Solomon himself had demonstrated, a precursor and a foretaste of the one who is still to come. And you're awed by the plan of God. Adams is awed. Rarely will one find such an individual who has the capacity to couple justice with wisdom. But then you meet Solomon. But there's one greater than Solomon that's here. Jesus. And when the Word of God and the Son of God converge upon your heart, the wisdom of God is available to you to cultivate discernment in the face of deception. Let's stand together. We're awed by the practical nature of your word. These stories are not merely meant to be read. They possess principles which need to be applied. Guidelines by which we should live. Now if there's one or more here today and they're in a maze of confusion and they desperately need bin, they need discernment, they need chokmah, they need wisdom, I pray now, Father, using these guidelines that are found here, may we allow them to connect and work outwardly into the relationships you provide us with and the decisions that we have to face on a daily basis. Wisdom. Discernment. We need you. We praise you for what you give us. For this, we give you all the glory and honor now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.